So in our homework this week, we were asked to study Mordecai to basically identify him to see what we could find out who he was and what he was about. I learned that Mordecai was a descendant of Benjamin and Kish, who was the father of King Saul. So he had actually come right from King Saul. He was a Jew, one of God's chosen people. He was living in Persia after his ancestors had been taken away from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in the captivity. He had an official position in the court of the king, at least it seems that he did. He had adopted Esther, his cousin, as his own daughter after she was orphaned. After she was taken to the palace for the king's original bachelor show, he checked on her every day. He was caring. He advised that she not identify herself as a Jew, as one of God's people, but to keep her identity hidden. Interesting. We're not told why. He saved the king's life when he overheard and reported a murderous plot, but he was initially given nothing in return. He did not like Haman. He refused to bow to him. Why? We talked a lot about that this morning. Was it because Mordecai was devout and wouldn't bow to anyone except Yahweh? Or was it because Haman was an Amalekite, a descendant of King Agag, whom Mordecai is a sin, uh, he is descendant of King Saul, his ancestor. He was supposed to kill Agag, but he didn't. So these people were ancient enemies of the Jews. Um, from reading Karen Job's, I learned that in Hebrew, um, there's a characteristic of the Hebrew narrative that when a character is introduced, how they're introduced is how they want you to think of them. Um, so when Mordecai is introduced in chapter 2, verse 5, he's not introduced as like somebody who is wise um, or as an official of the court, but as a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. And when Haman is introduced, he's identified as an Ag Agagite. So the author is telling you that there's going to be enmity. And if you were a listener, the original readers or listeners to this story, that would have set them up to know, oh, there's going to be some conflict here. There's going to be aggression. Um, so if you have your Bibles open, I want to read um, chapter 3. I'm going to read a few verses um, from 3 and 4 today. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, I have no idea, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to him, Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. What? I find it pretty ironic that Mordecai instructs Esther to conceal her identity, but he reveals his to some of his co-workers, and it has grave consequences. Well, how does Haman respond to this? With fury. He is not just going to kill Mordecai. He wants to kill all of his people. Did you notice that when they go and cast the poor or lots to determine the day of the genocide, he, they do that before he even ever goes to the king. He's not even asked the king yet if this is okay, but he's already picked his day. We can see his pride and arrogance. With the poor cast, the day determined, 
Haman goes to the king with a made-up story about how disobedient a certain people were. Did you notice that he doesn't identify them as Jews? He just says, there's a certain people here. They're very disobedient. They're real different. And they, they don't do what you say. They don't follow the laws. They need to be destroyed. And to sweeten the deal, he offers 750,000 pounds of silver. This was certainly an offer that the easily led king could not refuse. Now I'm going to jump to chapter 3, verses 12. This is after uh, the king has given his permission to, to kill the Jews. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Just that thought. They're sitting down and toasting and cheering to each other as the city's falling apart. Another little nugget here is that the day this edict was signed is the day before Passover. So you can imagine the Jews are preparing to celebrate Passover and commemorate that day. Um, and now this edict has been si signed for their destruction. <clears throat> this, Karen Job says again to the Jewish reader, would be profoundly ironic, suggesting the critical question, would God still deliver his people now in exile in Persia, even though they had violated the very covenant in which he promised protection? In other words, the knowledgeable reader would be asking whether the covenant with Yahweh celebrated by Passover was still in effect for the Jews of Persia. And you, you can make a case that the Jews had, that had stayed behind in Persia had compromised their faith. Why did they stay back there when they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem? Um, a faithful remnant had gone back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple, and their fate was now being decided too. Well, let's look at Mordecai's response in 4, 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. I was sad to read that Mordecai and the other Jews cried out. It reminded me a lot of what we had just studied in, in Judges, where the people would cry out. But there's no mention of God, um, of course. I knew that going in, that God is not mentioned in Esther, but still, you want to think it would say. They cried out to God. They prayed, at least. Um, the scholars I read were, were mixed in their opinions about whether they did pray. You know, some of them said, actually, you know, fasting did include prayer. And so, yes, they prayed. They humbled themselves. They cried out to God. Some of them thought they didn't. So we don't really know. 
Can you imagine the weight of responsibility that Mordecai must have felt? His refusal to bow to one Amalekite was now the catalyst to destroy every single one of God's people. And now the scene shifts back to the palace and to Esther, seeing Mordecai in his mourning clothes and wondering what has happened. It suggests to me that she was pretty insulated from what was going on in the outside world because she didn't, she didn't know. And messages are passed back and forth, and then she finds out what's going to happen. And Mordecai says, you've got to go to the king, and you've got to, you've got to plead for your people. So let's look at her reply in um, verse 11 of chapter 4. She says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So the power and influence that you would think the queen would have, especially the one that had been so favored um, and his favorite to, be, to, to even achieve the title of queen, really didn't mean much, did it? I mean, she couldn't just go and see her husband whenever she wanted. The law said that if you appeared without an invitation, you could die. What would you have done? Esther could have remained silent, saved her own skin. That would be what I would have probably wanted to do. Um, but Mordecai says to Esther in 13, Do you not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I still wonder, though, um, Mordecai saying, there's no guarantee that you're going to live through this, but she could have taken her chances. Again, no one seems to have known yet that she was Jewish. Also, remember that Mordecai, oh, excuse me, Esther and the king had been married four to five years now at this point, and he had not called for her in 30 days. So the honeymoon period was over, and perhaps their relationship had become stale. He's probably sleeping with all those other women in his harem. Who knows? Um, there's no guarantee that she'd be received favorably by the king, um, which would make her fear and reluctance very relatable. But to me, it also makes her courage more commendable. Ultimately, Esther has to decide who she is. What is her identity? Is she Esther, Persian queen? or Hadassah, Jewish woman, one of God's people. Interestingly, she's the only one in the story that we know both names for. We know her Jewish name and her Persian name. So let's read now 15 and 16. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Until now, Esther has been a very passive character. She's just kind of gone with the flow. She's done what she was told. Whatever Mordecai told her to do, whatever the eunuchs told her to do, whatever they suggested, she did. But now she has her own idea. She initiates a three-day fast for all the Jews of Susa, for herself and for her women. She will turn that identity, the noun, into identify, the verb. 
If she perishes, she perishes. What a cliffhanger. I wonder what happens next. <laughs> Hopefully you've already read. Um, I really like something that Alistair Begg said in one of his sermons a few weeks ago. Um, in studying scripture, there's three questions, and I think it was like, what, uh, say what, and so what. Um, I don't know if you, any of you guys heard that, but it, it's like, what, that means what does the text say, say what, what does it mean, and then so what, what does it mean for us? So here we are at the so what part, my favorite part, the applications. Although this story is very entertaining, um, it's here to change us. All of God's word is here to change us. So first, who are you? Where are you in relationship to God? If you're in a relationship with God, I think you have a clear idea of who you are, a sinner, and who he is. Um, and that's why we're in the relationship that we are with, with the Lord. If you are in Christ, you are one of God's people. That is who you are. Here's what the Bible says about our identity. And if you want to jot these verses down, I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to give you the references. We are new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17 We are children of God. Galatians 3.26 we are justified, Romans 5.1. We are Jesus' friends, John 15.15. 15. We are no longer slaves to sin, but free, John 8.36. We are God's heirs, Romans 8.17. We are forgiven as far as the east from west, Psalm 103.11 and 12. We are righteous, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And I could go on. There's so many great verses that tell us who we are. That covers the noun of who we are in Christ. But what about the verb identify? That how do we identify? How do you identify yourself? Um, you may identify yourself from one day to the next a little bit differently or even from one moment to the next a little differently. Is belonging to Christ your primary identification, the primary way that you perceive yourself? There's a TV show um, on right now on Apple TV called Severance. I don't know if any of you have seen it. But in it, this biotech company uses a medical procedure called Severance to sever your work memories from your non-work memories. So when you're at home and you're an Audi, um, you have no idea who you are or what you do at work when you're in any or vice versa. Your identity is split. So if, imagine being at work. You have no idea if you're married or, or not outside of home or if you have children or anything like that. Do you ever experience a spiritual severance? Do you split that identity? Um, you have a time when you act spiritual and then you have a time when you... You don't. I think we all go through that to a, to a certain degree, don't we? I can tell you um, that when, I, when mine splits is when I get behind the wheel of a car. Um, my usual patience evaporates so much. Um, I expect to go to the speed limit at all times, maybe a little above. Um, and so often my anger rises up to my shame. So if you're ever looking for, for my van to have a fish sticker on it, it will not. I don't want to dishonor God like that. No fish stickers. Okay. 
it's so easy also to get caught up in our other identities, the daily roles of being a wife, a mom, employee, friend, daughter, um, and forget that who we are in Christ should not only surpass, but also shape all those other facets of our identity. And I really believe if, if you elevate any other identity too far, um, it becomes fertile ground for idolatry. It's hard to keep first things first. Do you ever feel like you have to hide your identity from others? Are you afraid of the backlash you might receive for standing on the truth of God's word? It's going to get harder and harder to stand on God's word. Do you remain silent when you should speak up? Finally, I want you to see who Esther points us to. Someone royal who gave up his heavenly kingdom, who identified with his people to the point of taking on human flesh and walked the earth living among us. He was tempted all the ways that we are, yet he never sinned. He knew who he was and what he had come to do. He did perish so that we can live. He is now back in his heavenly kingdom, sitting by his father, interceding on our behalf. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you did identify with us, that you did perish so that we could have abundant life and an everlasting life with you. I pray that we will not be severed. I pray that going through minute by minute, we will remember who we really are and what our identity really is in you and the identity that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.